Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Jared Steller about his book, Converging on Cannibals, Terrors of Slaving in Atlantic Africa, 1509 to 1670, published in 2019 by Ohio University Press. Dr. Steller is Upper School Faculty and Curriculum and Instruction Coordinator of History at the St. Francis Episcopal School in Houston, Texas. Dr. Steller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, I wonder if you could, uh, we could begin this interview just by telling, uh, by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am from the Midwest. I was born in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana in Northern Indiana, so I come from sort of a blue collar uh, background. Um, I think of myself as sort of very working class uh, in that way, which which made actually academia really exciting to me. I ended up, um, I'm, my undergrad was at Indiana University, but I ended up um, on the East Coast at the University of Virginia, um, getting a PhD in African history there. And then from there, uh, my wife, I said, you can move me anywhere in the country you want to in Texas. So, of course, the job I got was in Houston. And so now uh, we're down here. I taught at, at Rice for a few years. And then now I'm uh, I'm teaching high school at a, a private school in, in Houston, Texas. Um, and how did you come to, to write this book? I think this is this is actually a question that I think many anyone who, who reads the book um uh, will 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 ask themselves because it's, it's such a it's in some ways it's such an interest it's, it's a topic that I can see capturing people's imaginations but but the way you went about it is so uh, particular that I think uh, I would like to hear how how you came about um, writing this book. Sure, um, you know, writing the book at all, the making the decision to write a book about cannibalism at all um, was an interesting choice. It. it I always knew that this book was out there and I was interested in it, um, but I didn't necessarily think that maybe this is the book that I should try to start my career with. So uh, it is interesting. I think that what happened was um, 
is my approach when when I approached African history, you know, I really wanted to, I think coming from America, I really wanted to understand Africa from African perspectives. When I was at University of Virginia with Joseph Miller, um, that was really what he emphasized was we're going to try to study Africa from African perspectives. Um, but what I ran into, I mean, the part of Africa I, I was there to study was sort of Sao Tome um, and Congo in the 15, 1600s. So you're reading through all of these sort of uh, old Portuguese texts. Uh, and that was really kind of all that existed for the time period. Um, and when you're reading through those texts, this issue of Teonobilism kept coming up. And I just found that for myself, um, I eventually came to the realization that I was going to have to deal with this topic in a real way. I was going to have to approach these sources um, answering questions that I felt like were still out there and still sort of unanswered from the historiography so that I could begin to approach Africans, Central Africans who were living in the 15 and 1600s more in their own terms. I just kind of found this this issue of cannibalism really getting in the way. And so um, I spent some time with this. And then, of course, uh, you know, actually, as I say in the book, in the introductory chapter, you know, so much of what we read when we're doing history is like one letter from one king to another or sort of like ship's logs, right? I mean, it's baptismal records. I mean, it's these records where it, it, sometimes it can be hard to find um, human voices, right? They're, they're a little dry. And so you do have, especially in the European sources, you have these, the complete opposite of that. You have these really sort of fascinating, really fantastical stories of um, all this mythical stuff, right? Cannibals, monsters, all of these things that Europeans were trying to figure out for uh, themselves as they were approaching this world that they really didn't understand. Um, and so when I was reading those texts, you know, first of all, they're just more interesting than sort of the, some of the other things I was reading, but they also shaped and I thought were, were interplaying with some of the more, um, with some of the other more standard political documents I was reading uh, in really interesting ways. And so what I began to feel like I was finding uh, in these stories is I was beginning to feel like I was hearing some of the voices that I was reading. So in the, sorry to, to take a pause there for just a second. Uh, mm -hmm. For Congo, we actually do have a series of documents produced by Africans in African voices from uh, the early mid 1500s, which, which is pretty rare uh, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, certainly in this part of, of Central Africa, but but we have these uh, documents written from the uh, Congo kings to the Portuguese kings and to other um, various individuals. And when I was reading those, which is really what I was sort of thinking about as I, I was interested in political organization in Congo. And as I was reading those, you know, I sort of had these these narratives from the Europeans. They were I, I was using them more as sort of corroborative texts or sort of, they were kind of secondary in my mind. But the more I worked in them, the more I began to feel like I was hearing some feedback loops um, between these stories and between those political documents that I was really um, spending most of my time in. Uh, and then I just sort of happened to realize that in one of these stories, in the British text, the ones from Samuel Perkis and Andrew Patel, that they had spent a lot of time revising certain portions of these texts and not any time at all revising other portions of this text. And, and that sort of sent me down on this loop. I, I began to realize um, that, that the Europeans were thinking about certain questions 
um, basically what is authoritative, what can they trust and what can they not trust. Um, and so that was already the question I was asking myself about their own texts, about their texts. But then I realized they were asking themselves that same question about their information. That sort of launched me onto this path of saying, well, you know what, this question of cannibalism was framing so much of what was what was out there, this idea of terror, this idea of, you know, who has the right to consume others, who has the ability to consume others. It seemed like a topic that that I could tell um, and that in some ways needed to be told so that we could understand um, some more, uh, some of the, the political questions that I had, I had raised earlier in my mind in my, in my African studies. Mm-hmm. Um, you do something very interesting and very useful. And um, so to, to start our conversation, I, I mean, I, I typically like to go, uh, you know, with the structure of the book, but sure. in this particular case, you add an appendix at the end of the book where you discuss yeah. your uh, methodology. And mm-hmm. in discussing that methodology, you obviously also discuss uh, the historiography uh, that you were working with and you were yeah. contending with in, in many cases. So as a way of kind of setting up sort of the, the, the story and not just the story of the book, uh, uh, but just the story that you tell on the book, can, can you tell us a little bit, you know, how what were those questions that you were beginning to contend with, both in terms of the uh, the, the the vast, uh, well, not necessarily vast, but the well-established historiography that existed about the political uh, structure of the Congo. Um, yeah. And um, and then this other, you know, like what you call uh, the Jaga myth, you know, in the, the, the debates that existed about the Jaga myth. And, um, and, and you know, how you, your particular methodology allowed you to um, sort of... Uh, illuminate and unravel um, those particular uh, sets of literature? Yeah, so I was working, um, I was working at, at, at some time point, it felt like I was working with very different literatures, I think, as you point out. And I think the question that arose in my mind was why? Um, so, you know, I, I was working with um, Joseph Miller, who's written a lot in Central Africa. And um, like any field, there are there is a very well sort of established um, historiography, and so I'm following, you know, uh, Vancina and Birmingham and Miller and John Thornton um, and Beatrix Heinze and and all of these folks who have really done so much wonderful work uh, on Central Africa. As I got into the European literature and especially this issue of cannibalism, more uh, I began to realize that those folks who were working, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, at a time period when the sort of professional um, African studies was really getting off the ground, they were they were producing so much and they were able to produce so much kind of because there wasn't much out there that had already been produced. And so they were trying to produce grand narratives. They were also working on questions that were relevant at the time, questions of, you know, um, ethnicity, uh, questions of colonialism and anti-colonialism. And, and so there, there is this big, well-established literature, but it was sort of, you know, one of the real ethics of African studies uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was really, you know, African history for Africans. And I think that, that there was a real sense that they wanted to write African histories that, that seemed authentic to themselves. And so they really, uh, that, that group of scholars tended to de-emphasize, I think, the European stories. They wanted to gather oral traditions, 
um, they really wanted to, to highlight and emphasize, I think rightly, of course, right, um, African voices and African stories. Uh, but in doing so, uh, in doing so, what I think that allowed me to do was, and, and other folks like me now, is I think it allows us to go back to the European story, uh, sources. I think there are lots of questions um, that, that were left open by that first generation. Um, where we have an opportunity to go back and really interrogate these sources and what they might tell us about African history in a different way. And so what I, what I did then is I started saying, okay, well, if, you know, Patel wrote about, about Central Africa and Thornton and Miller um, ha have discussed Patel pretty well, but they didn't say much about Patel's editor, Samuel Perkis. Like, what can I find about Samuel Perkis? And it turned out when I when I started looking into those questions, and I did a similar sort of thing with just in general the literature, the world history literature on cannibalism. It turned out that a lot of these characters that I uh, had sort of in my mind framed in this very Central African uh, narrative and in this very Central African historiography, other folks were writing about them in other contexts as well. Right, Samuel Perkis is important uh, in in European history, and um, there's a lot of literature out there between historians and anthropologists. Um, regarding cannibalism at this time period in the world. And so I was able to start drawing together connections that the, that first group of folks, um, through no fault of their own, I mean, based on the, the sources that were extant at the time, um, that, that I was able to draw together some threads that they hadn't yet drawn together. Uh, and so I think when I was creating that book, that's really what I'm doing is I see myself as a second generation going back to a lot of the sources that they're, that they're using um, and also broadening the, the types of sources and the number of sources that we can bring to bear to tell um, a Central African history story. Mm -hmm. um, so you, in your second chapter, sort of you start with this, uh, the story, and you use this chapter to sort of, uh, again, kind of unravel um, these, uh, basically when in essence is kind of like the, the way in which Afonso the first, uh, uh, sort of rose to power and, and the way in which he kind of sets the stage for the emergence of this, uh, of this image of the cannibal. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how do you see this? How do you understood this moment when, when you started in the literature, in the sources, how did this started to become clear to you? Yeah. So the, um, for me, this chapter is, is near and dear to my heart because this was actually the beginning of my Central African work. Like when I, when I got to grad school and I started working on the sources, I think the thing that really hooked me, there were two things that really hooked me. One was the history of Sao Tome Island, which I just didn't know much about, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get there a little later. Um, but the other thing was, how did Afonso uh, sort of create um, and innovate on what was already happening in Congo, but bring uh, about a certain amount of social change as he's interacting with Christianity, as he's just interacting with, you know, European economic and military systems. Uh, and so this chapter for me is one, I, this is probably the one that I had spent the most amount of time um, working on and thinking about before this book was done. I'd probably had about eight years thinking through this chapter. I actually almost didn't include this chapter in the book because it doesn't address cannibalism specifically. But what I see uh, Afonso doing here, and, and I think more importantly, I think sort of uh, the reaction to what Afonso is doing here is when I read the sources, and I'm definitely 
reading the sources in a different way than than some of the other scholars have. But when I when I read the sources here, I see somebody who um, is working to you know if we put it in European sort of terms, right? He's centralizing authority um, on himself in a way that makes a lot of sense uh, in Europe, right? This is the time where we're we're going to move toward toward monarchies that have centralized more power in Europe. And I see Afonso wanting to do that. He's using in a lot of ways, the idioms of Europe. He's using the language of Christianity. He's using the language of the Bible uh, to do that. He's trying to create, I think, within Congo, this group of both Congo Catholics and European Catholics, who in many ways are, are dependent entirely on him. Because when I see the sources, you know, he's got this, it, it, what appears to me to happen in 1509 is he has this miraculous battle where he defeats his half-brother. And what uh, that looks like to me is it looks like after the death of their father a few years earlier, um, it, it looks like that this this half-brother, this other sibling of his, there would have been many, many of these siblings, um, that this half-brother had been maybe fully installed, but this, this half-brother had been sort of designated as the successor uh, to the Congo composite. And I see Afonso's actions here as sort of a usurpation of that power. Um, and then... In that moment, like if, you know, to the extent that Afonso comes in, then yes, he's from sort of the important family. He's from an important region um, of Congo. He has important clients in his network. Um, but to some degree, because of the way he takes power here in 1509, he's clearly helped out by the Portuguese. He's clearly helped out by this sort of um, new power from a new God, right? This Catholic God that, that would have been uh, new for most Congo. Uh, then the interesting thing to me, and I think the thing that I'm working through in the book, is how do you justify and convince the people of Congo to keep going along with these changes that you're making? Um, and, you know, like most changes that politicians make or, or when there is a change in, in government in any place in time, I think people are relatively happy to go along with them as long as they see successes, as long as they see how it is that they're benefiting from whatever the changes are. And I think Afonso was, was able to do that in some ways, but in other ways, he very quickly, the, the correspondence that we have to Europe, it very quickly turns sort of negative, right? Because one of the things that makes him successful is the ability to channel people as captives, right? War captives as slaves uh, into the network of slaving, the, the transatlantic network of slaving for the Portuguese. But pretty quickly, right, the violence and the slaving comes closer to his door. It comes literally closer to his family, where, where some of, you know, the royal family and hangers-on um, might be captured and sent out, out as slaves. It certainly comes closer to the capital. And so when, when the chaos of, of slavery uh, comes closer, right, he's trying to justify this new thing in a moment where his position might be relatively weak, where there might be a lot of people looking around and saying, why, why should we continue to do this? Because it it doesn't make much sense for us right now. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm, oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Did you have a question? Oh, no, 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 go ahead. <laughs> I was oh, just no, thinking I, Yeah, I guess I was just thinking through it because for me then the reason, so I said I, I almost didn't include this chapter in the, in the book. And so the reason that I ultimately did include the chapter in the book is because I think it's in that, it's actually in those towards the end of his life by the 16 sort of 30s, um, I think it's in this real attempt to continue justifying this new legitimacy, justifying this new religion, this new sort of political order based on these 
foreign symbols and he, and he internalizes them as much as possible. It's one of his geniuses is to take, I think, so many Catholic symbols and make them look and feel uh, Congo for the people uh, who are around him. But even still, when when it really breaks down, like once you lose that sort of, once you lose that sort of first figure, which Afonso is, who's able to hold things together because he was the one who was who received the sort of divine uh, victory from the Catholic God. Uh, once that the energy of that sort of burns out, I think if you're everybody else in Congo, you're kind of looking around and saying, well, what are we left with? Now it seems like the people at the center were getting awfully wealthy uh, and were the ones who are out here suffering. Like how, and, and that's where I think the Afonso piece fits in, as I explained in the book. I think this gets to sort of social healing uh, ideas of witchcraft, ideas of justice and equality in Africa. So I think he kind of sets a tone or he sets, um, uh, he sets things in motion um, that then later Congo kings and also South. Uh, in, in among the um, in Bundu in Angola, that they're going to have to that they're going to have to negotiate as slaving and increased Portuguese presence uh, continue rippling out the sort of amount of terror and violence that you have here in Central Africa. No, uh, ex- exactly, and like like you very um, you know astutely put uh, explaining this chapter also it's I mean all these in the context of a political system that it's, uh, you know, that is changing. <laughs> that Afonso, That's like right. you said, helped change it and, and create it, went from this composite into trying to create a much more centralized um, system. But then when he's dead, what we, and, and you, you follow this out precisely in, in the following chapter, uh, when we see the struggle of his successors and trying to hold things together. Um can can you tell us a little bit about how how this struggle to hold this thing together again sets the stage for the emergence of this these images uh, and these uh, uh, ideas about cannibals uh, more specifically now? Yeah. So the the, the way I see the struggle um, post Afonso really working out, and the sources don't use this language. This really comes from, you know, a lot of my reading in the secondary language. It comes from sort of some more modern sources that we have. Um, but I, the, this idea of, this idea of greediness just seems to come up um, a lot in the sources, right? This idea that, you know, I, I, the idea that you could profit in Congo um, by sort of promoting violence and, and, you know, taking members of other people's families and lineages and clans and selling them to sort of these outsiders, uh, even as even as war captives, which there was obviously a longer tradition um, in Central Africa for some slavery, right? But this new context and this increase in um, demand for slaves that you have through this time period, I think really sets the stage. So this conflict after Afonso dies, I think, I think works out as his successors are really struggling. They don't have the same justification um, with, I think, the broader community uh, to, to sort of say, you know, I'm the protector of the Congo composite in the way that, you know, a, a previous leader like Afonso's father would have. You know, they really have to double down on being the authority because they're the ones who have access to uh, the Catholic God or because they're the ones who have access to the Portuguese um, but as they're doing that, if you're everybody else in Congo, you know, if these Catholic kings, starting with Afonso and then continuing on, if they have been 
reducing the numbers of local healers with a with the Portuguese called which is what what the inganja of the book right the social healers if there are less local if there are fewer local uh, healers like that if you have to go to the Portuguese you know when somebody is sick or or you know somebody is pregnant and you want to make sure that that's a successful pregnancy the uh, the entire context the entire sort of religious protection the security that you feel I think has really gone away and um, and again I think Afonso was able to sort of draw his entire career on this miraculous victory that installed him in power and I think after him the next few which is pretty common in world history right the challenge of the successor I think the next few folks the next few leaders really had a hard time convincing everybody that they had the same access and the same power and the same authority to protect the community, which was their responsibility that Afonso had had. Mm-hmm. So you use in this chapter the um, um, the uh, the anecdote or the the story of Alvaro um, mm-hmm. and how his court is attacked and he what well, I mean, is allegedly attacked. And how he, in some ways, uh, your interpretation is that in some ways he might have tried to sort of recreate that uh, that uh, momentous moment and that uh, victory, you know, in which, in this case, with the assistance of the Portuguese, he's able to, um, uh, you know, take, uh, you know, resist the attack of, uh, in this case. Um, you know what? What came were described in in some of the sources as as the jagas. You know, and yeah. uh, and uh, tell us a little bit how how this uh, story, uh, um, you know, how these these images of like greediness and this this uh, this this moment, this political moment, uh, you know how the two the two parties the portuguese on the one hand um through through these narratives but on the other hand uh the usefulness of of this image in this particular moment sort of plays out so um so yeah i think this is a really interesting story right so there's uh allegedly this invasion that comes through eastern congo it's really important in the story the the region of congo they come from or they come through has historically been, it's this very sort of traditional, very proud region of Congo that has traditionally been looked at as the sort of defenders of Congo. So the fact that the Jaga in the story comes through uh, that region towards the east of, of Congo, uh, it has a lot of symbolic importance internally uh, to Congo in the story. And, you know, these, these invaders come in and they sort of ransack the capital. And uh, Alvaro and his, his core are chased to this island i mean it's large enough to, to hold a few hundred people but it's relatively small right this marshy island in the middle of a big river it's diseased it's swampy they don't have a lot of food people start to feel uh, to feel very ill um and and in this and in this story you know what happens is we've got these islanders uh from sao tome um who are coming and and they are technically portuguese they're technically portuguese subjects Some of them may be from Portugal itself. Most of them are probably descendants of early Portuguese African uh, liaisons. So they're a little bit more um, naturally acclimated to the environment. Um, But they show up on this island, right? And they start saying, hey, look, y'all don't have any food. You didn't plan to come here. You know, we'll trade you some food. And in exchange, right, we we want some people that that we can sell further along uh, into the transatlantic slaving networks. Uh, And, 
you know, in that moment, and I think that this is important in the history of slaving, it's certainly something that, that scholars of Central Africa talk about a lot is, you know, Africans aren't selling each other. They're certainly not selling family members. But in that moment, like what might motivate somebody to sell other human beings? And here we do see one of these stories, we at least have in a story of what might motivate that. And, and that's, you know, if the choice is I have to sell a client or a junior family member or starve to death, some folks might have might have made that option. And so when everything works out, right, when a few years later, the Portuguese sent a military expedition to help Alvaro out, and this military expedition from the Portuguese drives the Jaga sort of this this kind of like group that's just been ransacking the countryside uh, in the story uh, in Congo for the last few years. You know, they drive them out, they restore Alvaro and his court um, to the capital. And it does come off as a redemption story. Of course, it also, it, it's not as, even in, even in that telling, right, it's not quite as miraculous as, as Afonso's. Afonso's had marched out against his brother, and there's this sort of angelic cavalry that comes down, and, and they don't even have to fight Afonso's men, right? The, their enemies just sort of fall down in fear um, as they hear a noise and see a cross in the sky, right? And and in Alvaro's story, that's not true. Like, these are human saviors. These are Portuguese saviors. So even in the retelling, he's sort of being propped up by the Portuguese here. And um, so it is Alvaro, I think, uh, in this story, um, it feels it's always felt. And this is one of the connections I noticed very early on when I when I read Alvaro's story. It sort of sounds biblical to me, old, a sort of Old Testament like prophet wandering around in the wilderness and everything keeps going wrong. And then, and then sort of miraculously, like God sends him some folks and they, and they go and they do uh, whatever they need to do to be, to be saved. And the story just has that very sort of biblical old Testament sort of feel. Um, and, and so I think Alvaro is trying to make a connection here, or the story certainly has connections with the redemptive type of story that Afonso had, but the context has changed the Portuguese are going to be much more involved now uh, than they were before um, in, in what's happening. Slavery is so much more a central part of this narrative than things were before. So we have renewed Congo. We have sort of re-Catholicized Congo. In the story, um, right, I guess this is the other piece of it. In the story, Alvaro isn't saved until he like asks God for forgiveness for all of his sins, right? And I've just, um, so there's this very Catholic, um, but also very sort of slavery-centered and very Portuguese-centered piece to this narrative that I think there are echoes of Afonso um, for Alvaro, but it definitely, um, in terms of like how much has traditional Congo been preserved in this story, it feels like this is a shift to something more Catholic, more Portuguese than maybe we had before. Mm-hmm. Uh, in... I mean, as you follow sort of the, this this process, uh, you know, the, the sort of the these invaders or the, these images of invaders that um, you know are like nothing in, in terms of the violence and, and in terms of the the um, the structures that had existed in this area. Um, so you you follow that up in 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 this in your following chapter, destroyers of Angola. Uh, where you talk about like what came to be recognized basically as Imbangala groups, uh, you know, in, in contrast with the Jagas. And I think it would be good to um, 
you know, as you explained to us, uh, you know, this this transition from from this like mythical image of the Jaga uh, to try to explain also why, uh, you know, what is the distinction between the two? Because that, like you mentioned in the book, then there, there was a time where we there used to think that people used to think that the Jagas and the Mangalas might might have been the same. There was a almost a deliberate uh, sort of um, uh, a, you know, confusion between the two, um, and I think in 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 your book you kind of explain very well. You know, like you know what is uh, uh, the relationship between this this uh, these two terms that were used uh, oftentimes uh, indiscriminate uh, indistinctively to 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 talk about um, uh, these groups uh, that were I mean behaving in 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 ways that had not been seen in, in this area. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question, and it's one of the, the big questions in the, the historiography of Central Africa. Um, there's sort of a, a famous debate, at least famous in, in Central African history circles between my advisor, Joseph Miller, uh, and John Thornton, um, where they're trying to figure out who these folks are, who these Jaga are, and where they come from, because they do pop up in the sources, but just like in the Alvaro story, they sort of pop up, and then they seem to, to go away again. They're very sort of shadowy. Um, and I think that I, I wasn't the first one to do this. There were, there were folks before me who had done this. But, you know, the linguistically scholars had uh, worked out in the 90s. Jaga is not an ethnic term, which is how sort of those earlier, that earlier generation of scholars was looking at it. They were trying to map that particular, that particular term onto like a, an existing or a formerly existing tribe um, of Africans. Uh, and in the 90s, I think it, people, it became more, uh, more just sort of acknowledged that Jaga was more of an adjective. It meant sort of vagabond. It meant somebody who was living a life sort of out on their own, uh, wandering around. The Portuguese associated, uh, and, and there's good scholarship on this now, but the Portuguese associated all sorts of negative implications um, with this term, right, sort of feed, those sorts of things. Uh, and so what I'm able to do in, in my story is build on a lot of that earlier work uh, and move pretty quickly uh, into being able to say that, look, you know, in the story, they're going to talk about these Jaga as if this is a tribe, as if this is a group of people. But we now know that that wasn't really the case. And so, um, but however, on the other hand, the Mbangala, the ones who show up in the stories, uh, certainly the, the ones who show up in, the, in this chapter, um, that it, those are the ancestors of you know, modern day and Bangala groups uh, in Africa. So, um, yeah, I was able there to draw on on the work that, that had come before me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm-hmm. And, and so, in, you know, once you clarify that, uh, it's then you start talking to us about how, you know, in, in contrast or in, you know, uh, to to add to the story, how this in Bengala groups uh, uh you know themselves. You know, start to you, you see the use of of the term or something uh, yeah. uh, that could be used as a term of cannibalism, 
um, that and how in some ways this this sort of adds to an existing story, uh, and you know in some ways how the 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 use of this term by by the in Mangala themselves uh, and and given the the sort of the lifestyle and the and the new forms of in which they operate in this area. Um, you know, gives lends itself to to the kinds of uh, descriptions and and misconceptions that that then we see reflected in the European sources. Can you tell us a little bit about this this group? You know, what this group is and why, how how it left such an impression in in the records. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, these first groups of of Mbangala uh, who who enter into the story, and here we're talking in the early sixteen hundreds. Um, we don't know exactly who there are. There's a couple of different ideas. I think it's it's pretty likely, and and the and the sort of theory, the the scholarship that I find the most convincing, um, has these folks as sort of the descendants of Nyanika speakers further to the south, the drier regions, um, coming down sort of out of the highlands. They were they were more pastoral, um, and pastoral. The history of pastoral peoples in Africa is I I, I just find absolutely fascinating. By the way, as an aside, are you allowed to have a favorite part of your book? Because this is actually my favorite part of, of my book. I <laughs> oh, yes, you're totally it. allowed. <laughs> okay, I, because I, I, um, I just really, I, I think that, that this, this part of the story I find really interesting myself. And, and I do think it's sort of fascinating. So I think two things are happening. I'm going to stick to the, the question, which is kind of, who are these people and why did they start, why, why did they start doing this? Um, but, you know, so it, when pastoralists, uh, first of all, they have to be very well militarized, and that's going to become important because these folks are going to be involving themselves in the business of slaving, which is very violent. Um, but pastoralists also have to be really well organized, particularly in times of drought, right? When the environment goes wrong and you have to protect the herds, you really have to figure it out, not only amongst yourselves, but amongst the nearby pastoral groups, because if there's, you know, the usable land, if that's reduced, you have to be able to work together to preserve the herds uh, so that you can survive. And um, so the, the the story that's happened here in Central Africa is, you know, during times of droughts, these pastoral folks would come together in these really militarized war bands uh, to protect the herds. But when the drought was over, they would sort of go back to normal. And maybe it was one particular group that was together, or maybe a few of the local groups would come together uh, in these in these sort of war encampments to protect the herds. Um, but then when the when the drought was over, they would they would disperse um, for whatever reason. Probably prolonged drought. Some of these folks begin moving towards the north. So some of these pastoralists begin moving towards the north here uh, in the early 16, uh, in the late 1590s and the early 1600s. Uh, and you don't have to go too far north before you run out of pastoral lands and into agricultural lands. Uh, and so this group of Mbangala at first maybe starting out maybe entirely or maybe primarily as Nyanika speaker, like gathers hangers on as they move along. And by the time they get towards northern Angola, they've got quite a mix, um, most likely, uh, of folks, um, but increasingly people are devoted to these bands in this very sort of intense war lake. You're constantly on the move. You're constantly looking to defend yourselves. You're constantly looking to prove yourself, right, as a warrior within this group. And so these Mbangala groups really take on a life of their own. Um, and as the, the sort of 
history is as they move into these agricultural lands, they're just so effective. They're so sort of martially uh, effective um, that they're able to either threaten their way into the, the lands of various agriculturalist groups or their way or they're able to defeat um, many of the agriculturalist groups. Uh, and but um, I think the piece of the book that I find really that I find just so interesting is as I was writing this, I began to understand that moving and living like they did, they were, I think, trying to recreate, again, I keep using this word energy, but this sort of energy of this mobile war encampment going back to just trying to survive the drought, right? That like really intense moment that brings people together, people who otherwise might fight each other, otherwise might hate each other, otherwise might kill each other, but in, if you can sort of maintain that constant state of readiness, that constant state of fear, that constant state of having to survive, um, it can sort of create a, a social unity that I think they that seemed attractive because these groups these groups got relatively uh, large relatively quickly, um, and I also think um, you know the history shows that that sort of unity was really effective and sort of disrupting local political and social organizations, but also creating new ones uh, in a pretty short amount of time. Um, and so the way this maps out uh, onto how did, you know, so, so why do they maybe begin to pose as, uh, as cannibals? I think as they move north, as they move into these more densely settled pastoralists tend to be less densely settled, Right, than agriculturalists. As they move into these areas, they're moving into what scholars of the, of the region might call the violence of frontier, the slaving frontier. They're, they're making more connections uh, with San Tomean or Portuguese or African slavers um, as a mobile warrior group, right? Like if most of your slaves are coming out of, out of captives uh, and uh, warfare, right? This is a group who, who might think to themselves, well, it's pretty easy for us to generate war captives. We can do that. And so they get into the business, some of them, not all of them, but some of them get into the business of slaving. And by the time they're into the business of slaving, you know, we've already had the Alvaro story of the Jaga going back 20 years. So we've already had sort of decades of, I think, what one scholar has called cannibal talk here in this region. And as I explain in the book, for the Europeans, there's lots of legal reason why um, cannibals are an important part of slaving, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's only a few reasons that you can have just war in the Catholic system. Or in, in the Catholic system. Um, and so, you know, to claim legal license over another human being as slavery, you know, you probably weren't going to be challenged on owning slaves. But if you were, you wanted to kind of make sure that you had that license. Um, and either saving somebody from cannibals enslaving a cannibal um, or, um, you know, getting victims that that had cannibals and and sort of like saving them from that fate was a way that you could kind of claim and justify uh, owning another human being uh, if you were the Portuguese. And I think the Africans uh, in the region were very savvy to that. Um, And then also, as as I go on to say in the book, you know, there's, so terror is really fueling this whole thing. And I, I think I've got a nice story in here of one of these warrior leaders um, who sort of says, you know, if if we set up camp and if we make these big demonstrations that we're going to attack them and just based on our reputation that we're so vicious and that we potentially, that we might potentially eat them if they don't submit to us, oftentimes 
we don't even have to fight anyone, right? They will sort of submit to us on their own, and then we can go in and take their crops and take their land uh, and do whatever we want to do. So I think, you know, the way that some folks today might find, you know, terrorism very effective um, for, you know, taking things in an environment where otherwise they might not have access to political power or the economy. Uh, I think that these folks realize the usefulness of terror and realize the usefulness of this particular image that is sort of going to grease the wheels in the entire system of, of slavery at this particular moment. Oh, no, and, and, and I think your following chapter, uh, when, when you talk about uh, Queen, uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this correctly, Njinja, Njinga? Njinga, yeah. Njinga, Njinga. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in this is a, a perfect example of how these, you know, that those particular strategies uh, work like you said, both at the sort of military and, and um, uh, you know, in these mobile groups, but then they also become really important and uh, they affect like uh, the inland uh, areas. In other words, this, this, this strategy is adopted. Um, these strategies are adopted uh, by uh, other uh, societies uh, in the more inland areas, and they follow, uh, to some extent, the expansion of that slaving frontier. Um, how did you came about uh, the history of of, uh, of this queen, and um, did it strike you immediately as as, as as a good example of this this sort of broad changes that were taking place in the region? Um, it it actually. Didn't I, I probably came to Queen and Jinga later than I came to anything else um, in the book. I think the uh, again in the secondary literature when I first looked at it, I was more interested in Afonso in the early 1520s, and you know here we're talking the mid 1600s. It seemed sort of far away removed from what I was most interested in. But as I as I began telling the Jaga story um, in the stories, Queen and Jinga, uh, and now we're talking in sort of um, uh, missionary accounts uh, from Italian missionaries uh, later, Queen Njinga becomes almost like the iconic, right? She becomes sort of the, the sort of paradigm uh, in Central Africa for what a vicious, cannibalistic sort of, he, um, you know, even demonic uh, sort of African is for the Europeans um, for their own purposes. They're, of course, putting they're putting so much of this on her, right? It's really useful to them to, to set her up in this way. I'm not suggesting that she wasn't of those things. I'm just saying, but in the stories, it was useful for the for the, the Europeans to continue telling that story. And so as I wanted to tell my story, this sort of arc of, of this cannibal narrative in Central Africa, I really felt like I needed to include her. Um, and, I, and I wanted to include her as well because I, I think, and, and this we get to in the next chapter in my book, which is sort of the conclusion, I call it the afterlife of the Jaga. But what's so interesting to me about the Jaga is there are still kind of cultural references to a lot of these stories, right? The Jaga will from time to time pop up in, in odd ways um, in science fiction or in movies um, or what have you. And so uh, in, order to, in order to show the long history, the centuries long history of this cannibal story, I really kind of needed to talk about about in Jinga because she was so paradigmatic uh, for the entire story. Um, so tell us a little bit about about the that um, 
you know, about her story, you know, I mean, because the other thing that I think this story is super interesting, why why this story is so so interesting too, is because it shows that savviness, you know, like that, that understanding of how uh, these symbols um, uh, could work in her favor. And at at the same time, and and to understand the changing situation of the movement of the slaving frontier, the, 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 the way in which she can ally herself with one group in one moment. And then with the Portuguese later on, go back to Catholicism. I mean, I found her story so interesting just from the point of view of like understanding uh, just her her political savvy in, in this circumstance. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She's um, she's in, obviously incredibly uh, incredibly savvy. And I and as we mentioned in the book, you know, I'm talking about a very particular time period um, of her life. I'm really talking about the most uh, violent time period. But what what I find interesting is I think exactly what you brought up, which is we're hearing about these stories filtered obviously through through um, Italian missionaries through Europeans. Um, but we're, what I think we're hearing is I think we're hearing in Jinga toward the end of her reign, toward the end of her life, looking back on a time period that was very active and very important for her, but one that she had moved on from and was now doing something else, right? So um, she sort of rises to power. She's a daughter of uh, an Indongo chief. Uh, she, at an early age, shows some some aptitude for sort of warfare. She's savvy. When her father dies, he's sort of being harassed by the Portuguese. When, when he dies, one of her brothers takes over. He sends her to the Portuguese in the early 1620s. And this is the first, you know, big moment. She converts to Catholicism. She successfully uh, negotiates with the Portuguese to sort of get that governor to leave her alone. Um, that, that alliance quickly falls apart when another governor falls, uh, or when, when he leaves and another go- governor comes in. Um, but she's able to negotiate that. So she sort of gains the trust of her brother where there had been some conflict there before. Um, but then her brother sort of mysteriously dies. She makes a play. In the meantime, right, this this new Portuguese governor continues to sort of harass Ndongo. The Portuguese military are moving into the lands. And so she's forced to flee further east. And, you know, part of the connection that she had, part of the alliance um, that they had were with these other Groups, these sort of inheritors of the Mbangala tradition, um, to the to the f- further to the east, and so she makes an alliance there uh, in Matemba, and 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 so we see her. I mean, just early, just in a couple of decades, right? Be be really savvy, be able to really sort of know what she wants, and be able to to promote herself and, and obtain the things that she wants, but also be able to sort of negotiate really quite different sort of environments. Uh, and as you move forward, so she, she continues um, as this, this sort of Mbangala uh, chief. She's, she's very successful in war. She's a successful slaver. She's running a successful camp. Um, she eventually, you know, the, the Portuguese continue to harass her. She starts making some gains. She really starts gaining when then she's able to ally with the Dutch. Uh, as a part of the the Thirty Years' War um, sort of like contest as the, as the Dutch uh, are rising. And then, you know, when the Dutch uh, are, are kicked out of, of Portugal, or I'm sorry, when the Dutch are kicked out of Angola, right, then she's able to, you know, be on her own. But then towards the end of her life, once again, as it's clear that the Portuguese are going to be sort of in power in the region, she reconverts to Catholicism, sort of allies with Portugal, again so that she can sort of have a stable community towards the end of her life so it's this really it's this really savvy 
um, this really savvy character and this really, I think, engaging story that you've got here, even understanding that this is a time period when exports of people who have been, been captured as war captives and, and are being sent out of Central Africa as slaves, even given her sort of role in that story, you know, she's this person that you just really kind of want to do well. You want this person to be able to accomplish the things I think that she wants to accomplish, and she does. Um, but the, the cannibalism, and I think more important than the cannibalism, really just this knowing and understanding that, that how effective terror was, and really, I think, how necessary terror was to the entire situation at this moment, right, in the years that I'm focusing on here. She's mm-hmm. just so savvy in the way that she used the, the terror in those moments to be able to accomplish her goals. But then when she's looking back at the end of her life, to explain that story um, in a way where she comes out looking um, as if she's had this, again, another big redemption uh, at the end of her life, right? I think part of the reason that Njinga's story is so, um, at the time, was so important in Europe was sure all the bad stuff that, that she had done, but she converts to Christianity at the end, right? These, these missionaries gain a lot of cultural cachet. They gain a lot of sort of uh, money. They gain a lot of sort of donors in Europe because Njinga uh, converts sort of in contact with them. Uh, and I think that when you read her source, you get a sense that she understood, even as she was telling this story of that time period in her life, how useful it was going to be if the people she was telling the story to um, believed that, you know, all of these bad things about her so that they could also believe the massiveness, all right, and sort of the, the, the importance of this redemption, of this return, of this rebaptism that she has uh, at the end of her life. Yeah. And, you know, that sets, uh, you know, the following chapter brings us back to Europe, but it sort of sets that contrast in the sense that in the same way that, uh, you know, this reign of terror and in this story of redemption, it's so important uh, for the purposes of missionaries. uh, And then you, in in chapter six, you know, you tell us how the, the, the way in which the 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 anxieties uh, about the Reformation and Counter Reformation in Europe uh, were in some way also informing uh, the reading of these stories and and the revision of these stories and the usefulness of these stories in the European context. Um, so t- tell us a little bit about that. You know how this. Uh, I mean, I think you already told us a little bit how you started to read some of this, but um, yeah. you know how how this. Um, these anxieties, you know, this idea of redemption, this idea of like what happens when you, you know, stray from the path (laughs) of the good God and, but what, you know, how good it is when you come back. Um, So tell us a little bit about how you came to this chapter, because I think it's also super, super interesting. The the, the story of the cannibal does not end in Africa, but has its it's long story in Europe too. Yeah. And so this is, uh, this is the part where, um, you know, I think I think the whole time, I mean, as much as I got into to doing African history to tell African stories from African perspectives, I think that this book really makes very clear that this, I think these cannibal stories are part of African history, um, but just how much in, in many ways these stories um, involve and are, and are really about Europeans um, as they're thinking about Africa. Um, but so in, 
in this chapter, preachers and, and publicists, you know, it's it's kind of a question of, of authority. Like you said, in Europe, first of all, in Europe, you have uh, you have similar or at least similar sounding enough stories, I think, to the people who were back in Europe um, to make stories like, like the Jaga invading Congo or, or stories like of, of Queen Lichinga feel familiar enough um, to be scary, but also familiar enough to be interesting and to be important and to make people want to want to learn from those stories and read those stories. Um, and, and so, you know, you have, you have in this chapter as, as I'm, as I'm looking through the chapter, you have these folks who want to understand the world as it's revealed to them. And, and this is in a moment where a couple of things are going on. You have the counter-reformation, you have the reformation and the counter-reformation. So even within Christianity, there are real uh, questions about what's true and what's not true. Um, I, it's a little early, right? But you're increasingly having uh, people such as Francis Bacon, right, arguing that, you know, the only thing that we know is true are the things that we can sense, the things we can see, touch, taste, smell. And so you've got these stories that seem too fantastical to be true. Um, but for these preachers, for these publicists, for these missionaries, for these sailors who are coming back, you know, who want to tell these stories, um, they need to convince an increasingly, I think, skeptical uh, audience about about how and why these things are true. And so you start finding some really, I, I think, really sort of fascinating attempts to link these seemingly fantastic stories to things in Europe that make more sense. So you know, one one uh, example I use in the in the book is how um, one of the the publicists tries to link some of the violence that you see happening here in, in Central Africa tries to draw really strong parallels uh, to incursions into, into Europe from the Ottomans, right? They try to link it to this other great sort of much closer, much more sort of, I think, um, visual or, or this, uh, this sort of enemy that more people in Europe can maybe visualize in their head. Uh, and they try to draw this parallel to say, look, this isn't only happening here, it's also happening there. This is something that's out there in the world. And if we don't turn to God, right, we have we're, we may potentially be victim to these sorts of these sorts of really uh, evil things. For me, the other thing that's really um, I think the thing that got me into this chapter and methodologically, I think one of the most interesting things about my book, I mean, certainly for me, one of the most fun things to do in this book was the sources that I'm working with, not all of them, but many of them, we have multiple versions of. And so what I do in this chapter um, is I show how over time, certain portions of text were revised and other portions of texts weren't revised, right? And the things that don't get revised tend to be the specific details that a sailor might come back with about Central Africa. So if they say, you know, there's 800 people at this particular type of ceremony, the publisher back in Europe who doesn't, have any other better information at hand, we'll go with that number until there is better information at hand, right? But when they're telling the story, when they're thinking about what it means to be redeemed, when they're thinking about what it means to find truth in God's world, truth in a world that increasingly is questioning what that truth means or how to find that truth, those are the parts of the story that get retold. And so, you know, um, I think what I'm seeing here as I'm reading the sources is why does this image of an African cannibal, specifically from Central Africa, but in general, 
an African cannibal? Why does this myth of one have such a long life? It's because these folks who are interested in this other business of redemption, of truth, they go back to these stories and they revise them with updated like actual facts about the world or, or truth as they can find it. Um, and But they they sort of like pour old uh, new wine into old bottles, right? They, mm-hmm. they give an audience that expects a certain kind of story. They update that story for them um, in a way to, to highlight these so these more narrative, these more religious, uh, these more religious, I don't know, ideas that they're trying to express. Mm-hmm. And, you know, following that train of thought, um, you you end your, your book uh, with this afterlife of the Jaga, you know, how the myth of the Jaga in some, in some ways continues to, um, you know, like you said, continues to pop up, you know, in, in, right. and yeah. here and there. And in some ways how, uh, you know, part of what I think it's, it's so useful about your book is that it has sort of, you know, given us a history of how this myth has, um, you know, what, what, are, what, what purposes this myth has served in the past. And, and, and in some ways it, it, it gives us a, a bit of a framework to understand how it continues to, to come up. Are, are there any particular instances of have you seen this, this myth reappear that, um, you know, either had given you pause or that, that did you feel are particularly telling of, of, uh, of what the myth represents uh, in, in more recent times? Um, that's an, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, the one that's, uh, where I start this chapter is I start this chapter with, uh, an image that was, that was published in the, in the sort of student newspaper at the University of Virginia when I was there. And, um, it sort of alludes to, uh, cannibalism, although there was, there was quite a lot of controversy over it. Uh, But I think it, the whole, you know, you asked me at the beginning, like what, what, sort of started this book how did it come to be i mean the book really came to be it came uh in my mind uh to ask the question is this something that needs to be written about sort of when i was when i was i wasn't even teaching then i was a, a teaching assistant and i'm doing these classes on uh on african history and my students wouldn't explicitly say but often seem to be talking around this idea uh in their head um and it was very it was very um is very latent, right? It's, it's a stereotype. It's often sort of unexpressed, but they just sort of ha- seem to be really almost too familiar with an idea that Africans were cannibals, that at least somewhere in African history, this, this was a reality that they shouldn't be surprised. If they saw that, they shouldn't be surprised uh, if they heard about that. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly, I can't think of a, a pop culture moment, for example, um, where I, I would say that I was necessarily struck to see this. I think what really struck me talking to to undergraduates and then sort of like once I once it granulated in my mind, I started like listening for my own for my own biases and sort of talking to other folks I know, but realizing sort of how widespread it was, these ideas of Africans as, you know, all sorts of negative images, um, but particularly this idea that perhaps Africans had been um, at some point, cannibals. Uh, uh, that's what really struck me, and that's what motivated me. I think, in a lot of ways, to want mm-hmm. to ask the question: 
how is it that 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 me, who's maybe never even heard a story of African being a cannibal, why does that story feel so familiar to me? I think that's really one of the driving questions of the, of the mm-hmm. book. Um, yeah, and and in a way, it, it, in 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 replacement to that, or, or in as an answer to that, I I felt like your conclusion in terms of what what you were trying to achieve with the book in terms of. Uh, you know that this other question. So, what happens if we are willing to, um, put, you know, understand or accept the, the notion that uh, the, these ideas about cannibals uh, uh, were, you know, a tool, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to serve different purposes for different peoples, uh, as much yeah. as a, as a result of these misunderstandings that happened in at moments of uh, encounters of different cultures, but also of extreme stress and violence for all of those societies. Um, right. it, I think your book makes a really good point in, uh, in, in, in telling us, it not, might not even be the cannibal, but might be other, other tropes, you know, that, right. that emerge yeah. at, at moments like this. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and the need to investigate those, uh, those kind of stereotypes or ideas that uh, in, in many ways, like you said, continue to come up and, and they're telling us uh, not that there are cannibals out there, but that there's uh, that, like you said, terror and, and fear. Um, yeah. Are, are very powerful movers, uh, both when uh, there's political, uh, you know, contest in, in politics or economics or, or not, not just military. Um, yeah. So is there anything else about the book that you would like uh, to say or uh, that I haven't asked you about? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there was, as we're talking about the end of the book, one of the things um that's really interesting. I mean, uh, who knows? Maybe it'd be really cool if someday this this managed to get a second edition. One thing I've always thought of um, with the book is that I see it operating on on two parallels. And the way the book, or I see it, I see it sort of um, by parallels. I mean, sort of. I, I think I'm answering sort of two questions at one time. I've got a methodological piece, but on one hand, I really am trying to trace chronologically on the ground as much as possible. But obviously, we get out more sort of um, Literally metaphorical as you go as you go through the book, you know how the development of this idea of of a cannibal, what it looked like across time on the ground in Central Africa, um, and the other piece is where we've ended here, which is thinking about you know the development of the story of uh, African, uh, you know Central African cannibals across time. And so, um, in terms of the book, one of the things that I think is is interesting is it, it could be rearranged completely differently. I, I do think you could almost read it backwards to read mm-hmm. like from from where we are now uh, back towards the method or back towards the, the beginning to see the the unraveling of that story that gets told um but for me i think if i was ever to get a chance to reorganize the book it might be interesting to take these last two chapters the one on the publicist of creatures uh and and the one on on the afterlife of the jaga and really put those two at the beginning uh frame the book right in terms of this story and then go back and start with Afonso and move and move through the other stories again. So I think in in terms of the book, I think I'm answering a couple of questions, and and there might be some interesting alternative ways to actually to actually think about the book um, while you're reading it. I think the only other thing, and you you kind of started here, um, but I, I just I would be really remiss if I didn't acknowledge um, a couple of things. Uh, 
first of all, um, I, I had a lot of fun writing this book. I got to work with some really cool people, especially uh, uh, Joseph Miller worked really closely with me while he was still alive um, on this book. And that was really fun. We developed um, a, just a, a fantastic friendship as we went through this. But you asked um, at the end here, you know, about the appendices mm-hmm. and, you know, it, you know, for the listeners, the appendices, um, I was proud of these. So Ohio, this is part of the the Africa and World History series. And one of the things that they really wanted was they wanted a book that was readable. Um, and they really wanted a book that was sort of readable, kind of pitched at that life first year undergraduate level. And so they didn't want a book where there was a, a lot of notes, um, a lot of discussion of the historiography, those sorts of things. And so the opportunity to put into the appendix some of my thoughts about methods, some of the historiography, um, the ability to, to publish, uh, or at least in pieces, some of the primary sources that I was working with. Um, you know, I, I think it's really, I think it's really um, great that Ohio wanted a book like that, a very sort of usable uh, book that was still narrative. Um, and uh, that piece of the book, I think, is is really fun. And, and for you know the readers who get into it, I think they'll find a lot of stuff here at the end of the book uh, quite useful. Um, I'm very glad you bring that up because I myself enjoyed uh, very much uh, your research methods. Uh, and and but being myself someone who uh, tries to drill a lot of uh, historiography into my own classes, uh, but but I, but I found that particularly useful, especially because uh, as a teacher, you're constantly trying to 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 get your students to think about how how this thing gets put, how something like this gets put together, and uh, not just in terms of like what are the you know what are the sources, but how do the sources get read? And 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 in in your research method part, where you talk very specifically about. Uh, not, not not just about this history of like the you know the moving from the oral sources into uh, trying to revisit uh, the, the the written sources, uh, but you know how to how to you know what this you know we we hear this um, this term you know deep reading or or slow reading or, or uh, but you, you actually spell it out you know like what yeah. what this looks like and what what this implies so uh, I yeah. very much. Uh, uh, want to say that yes you were right this is the most one of the most fun parts of the book we, 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 we really get us under the hood there and it's 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 i think very worthwhile for us i mean for me i mean not i'm not a central africa specialist so i, I really enjoy that part uh but it, it really makes it very i mean i can see myself using it in my classes for sure yeah, yeah, that's also. I mean, that was the goal. We wanted a not a textbook, right? But we wanted a, a, a book that was useful in the classroom. So that's really that's really cool to hear that. Yeah, yeah, I know. And you know, in a way, um, you know, I teach a lot of um, uh, just uh, prospective teachers. You know, people who want to train as as social yeah. studies teachers or something. And one of the big problems that we have when we teach students like this is that they end up reading. Uh, you know. They end up reading a lot of textbooks, and they they, they don't right. end up reading a lot of history. and And I think your book okay. is a good example of of the marriage of the you know the, the the perfect book to teach prospective history teachers. You know, someone students who can uh, read uh, a, a fairly specialized text, but also understand how it gets put together and how primary sources get read and how secondary sources get read. Most importantly, yeah. because we hear a lot about the reading of, of primary sources, but we don't nearly hear enough about the reading of secondary sources. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. It's, I would it's, say, it's, you know, oh, sorry not to interrupt. I, I would say I've noticed that um, 
at the high school level, now that I'm teaching the high school level as well, I see um, quite good resources for reading primary sources. And I think the reading of secondary sources, there isn't, uh, it, it, it isn't quite as well developed for the classroom. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, I think I've taken plenty of your time by now. Is uh, Would you like Thank to you. tell us a little bit about uh, your current projects? Um, my current projects um, are actually non-academic. I, uh, I recently wrote a children's book that I'm, that I'm sort of excited about. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I, so I did my dissertation research on South Tome Island, which figures really prominently in the book. It's one of, I think it's one of the real contributions I make to Central African history. I had, I had South Tome there quite a bit. That's kind of where I started. Um, but um, I, I wrote some poetry, so I'm working on a, on a book of poetry. I think in terms of my next, uh, my next academic uh, piece. I would like to come back to Central Africa, and I, I'm not finished with Afonso and his political machinations there uh, in the early 1500s. So I would like to come back and sort of finish that piece where, where I'm really only kind of scratching the surface uh, in this book. So that'll be the next piece. I'm hoping to get started on that. Got a lot of preliminary work, but I'm hoping to start finally drafting some things for that this summer. Well, excellent. Um, thank you very, very, very much uh, for your time and for uh, your insights and for the book. Uh, it is, yeah. I mean, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, so uh, thank you very much. And we'll talk, we you. hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you.